Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Well, first off, I am very grateful for all of the good feedback that I've been getting since we began this series. I think, because I'm me, I think, well, once I've said it, I've kind of said it. And I don't often go back and revisit things that I have already said. Even if I've said them 20 years ago, I assume, okay, that got said. And there's no reason to go back and review it. And so to some degree, this series that we've been teaching now is a bit of review. After all, I've written a book on the doctrines of grace. After all, I taught through the doctrines of grace when we were becoming established as a church. I taught through the doctrines of grace at several different conferences. And the audio of those messages is on the website. And so I just assume, well, it's already been said, it's already on the website, and yet I am very overwhelmed by the amount of response that I have gotten, positive response, as we've been going back through these doctrines of grace. Tom suggested, he said, this has been such a good series that when you finish it, you should go back and do it again. I I will not be following that advice. But nevertheless, I appreciate all the good feedback. We are talking about God's irresistibility, which if you combine that with what the Bible says, the biblical anthropology where human beings are concerned, then you're going to recognize that we are depraved, sinful, nobody does anything that's good or positive, Our hearts are naturally wicked and deceived. Who can know it? So the Bible says nothing good or positive about man in his natural state where man is spiritually concerned. Man cannot decide for God. He cannot determine to go chase after the things of God in and of himself. And since there is nobody, according to Paul, whoever stirred himself up, he says, quoting Isaiah, there's nobody who ever stirred himself up to go seek God. And so since that's the case, it has to be God who sought men. And so he goes seeking individual people, and the question that we've been confronting the last couple of weeks is, once God is determined to convert somebody and draw them to himself, can that person deny God? Can that person resist God? Can that person by his own willfulness, determination, and stubbornness say, no, I will not have God rule over me? And what we have seen biblically the last couple of weeks is the answer to that question is no. And at that point, I really could just sit down. And say, well, okay, the answer is no. Now we've answered the question. Let's move on. But we have been taking the time to show all the biblical evidence because, after all, the Bible is the final authority. Your opinions, your ideas, your thoughts, your imagination, your conjecture means nothing. Especially in the courts of God, God is not particularly interested in what you have imagined. Instead, we have to conform our thinking to God's form of thinking so that we think his thoughts after him, so that we say his words after him. And the only way to do that is to go to the Bible and see what the Bible has to say about it and then conform our thinking to what the Bible actually says. And if you do that, you come away with the realization that human beings are completely self-centered, egocentric, that we are Idiolatrous, just by nature, we worship ourselves more than we worship anything else. And so God has to change us. He has to conform us. We have to be born again is the biblical language. 
our hearts our minds our blind eyes our stuffed up ears all have to be opened in order for us to understand anything about God and what he has actually said and it takes God by his miraculous and gracious power to actually change us so that we can understand those things so that's what we've been looking at for the last couple of weeks now when God calls somebody some sinner who he has determined for his own good reasons and his own good pleasure that there is a person he is going to call to himself is that a call from an omnipotent absolutely powerful irresistible God or is that merely a call of suggestion is God merely saying you know it would be a good idea for you to come to me or is he saying irrevocably by all his power is he saying you are mine because I have determined that from the beginning well that is what we refer to as an effectual call an effectual call is a call that actually accomplishes what God set out to accomplish as Isaiah has already told us God said when I send my word out it's like the rain it's like the snow it produces when I send my word out it will not return to me void it will accomplish that that I have sent it to accomplish so God sends his word to people on purpose to accomplish the will and desire of God. Therefore, it is impossible for me to conclude that when God sends his word to somebody and calls somebody, that then God leaves it up to that sinner, that person who can't do any good, that person who cannot seek God, I refuse to believe that God leaves it up to that person to decide whether that word of God is going to be effective or not that was a rather convoluted sentence but I hope you got my point we self worshipers are not going to turn from our self worship to worship God unless God overwhelms our desire our will our intention so that we will then turn to him and that is known as repentance the word repentance merely means turning 180 degrees you're facing this way toward you toward everything about you toward everything you love about you and then God turns you 180 degrees so that you turn your back on you and you face him that is what real repentance is and you can't do it and you won't do it of course you won't do it you love you and that is why the theology that says you know God loves you too is so popular because to the sinner who already loves himself when he hears about a theology and a God who also loves him that works for him it's like really God loves me too that's great because I love me and so then I love me and God loves me and everybody loves me so that works for me but when you tell people what the Bible actually says that you are depraved that you are sinful that you are in desperate need of a savior and then God comes and introduces himself to you and brings you to the knowledge of what he has accomplished through his son in his purpose of saving you you will then turn away from all that self-love to loving the God who saved you so we were saying that the call of God is an effectual call when God calls people those people are powerless to resist because after all he is irresistible when you read things like Jeremiah 31 the first four verses God is talking to Israel national Israel who are so rebellious against him that God is going to send them into the Babylonian captivity and Jeremiah is the one who says they're going to be there for 70 years so you need to know contextually Israel's relationship with God at this point 
Israel is in absolute rebellion against God. They've been chasing their foreign gods, and they're about to be taken into captivity to be punished by God. And yet, this is what God says to them. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Notice that God says nothing here about, I hope that works out. I hope those rebellious people change their ways and choose me. You find none of that language. Instead, what you find constantly when God speaks is the language of, I will do this. I will accomplish this. His declaration for Israel is, even though they are rebels, and even though I'm going to punish them, and even though they've chased their foreign gods, and even though they've broken my law, even though we are at complete enmity with each other, nevertheless, the time is coming, and I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. And thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness, Israel when it went to find its rest. And the Lord appeared to him from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Only God, by the way, the eternal God, can speak of love in eternal language. He's the only Entity in all creation who knows what eternity actually means. And he said his love for particular people has always been and will always be. He has always loved those people. And so he speaks of it as an everlasting love. And then he says, therefore, I have drawn you. See, therefore, I have drawn you to myself. I have opened your ears and your mind and your heart and your eyes. I have done what is necessary for you to bring you to myself. And I have drawn you with loving kindness. And again, I will build you and you will be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. That language itself is interesting because he refers to Israel as a virgin after he says they have committed adultery with their idols. So God here is saying he's going to purify them. He's going to forgive their sins. He's going to draw them back to himself. He is going to be their God. They are going to be his people. And all of that is motivated by the fact that he loves them because he has ever loved them. And his love doesn't change. And therefore he called them to himself with loving kindness because he has always loved them. So therefore I think we can conclude that if God calls anybody to himself, the motivation for calling them is that he has always loved them, which is why he wrote names down in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. That loving kindness is the reason that he calls people to himself. And I refuse to believe again that you can resist something that is already established eternally. God has already established that he loves you, you will be his people, he will be your God, and he's not leaving it up to you because he knows very well that if he leaves it up to you, in even a small degree, you'll mess it up. So that's what we're calling an effectual call. God calls particular people because of his everlasting love, and those people will respond. They will be my people. I will be their God. Those people have to respond to God. In other words, the only reason that you know anything about God right now, the only reason that you're sitting here on a Sunday morning, the only reason that you have a Bible, not a Bible app, the only reason that you have a Bible and then you actually read it and care about it and think about the things of God. The only reason any of that has occurred in your life is because God himself, by his everlasting love, has given you the ability to understand these things because he is in the process of drawing you to himself. But he didn't just do that randomly. 
He's doing it because he's always loved you. And if you think that you're going to overthrow the everlasting love of God by your own stubbornness and willfulness, you think way too much of you. You don't have that ability. But like I said, you're a natural self-worshipper. You're a natural self-lover. You're naturally egocentric. That's part of your sinfulness. You think you're sufficient in and of yourself. And then one day, you're going to find out if indeed God loves you. You're going to find out who you really are, what you're really like, and you're going to realize your own depravity and your desperate need for a savior, an intercessor to stand between you and an absolutely righteous, holy God. Because if someone doesn't stand in the gap between you and God, you're going to have to stand there and you're going to fry. But in order for you to stand before God and be accepted by God, someone has to do something for you that you simply cannot do. And that is the whole heart and soul of Christianity. So God effectively calls people. Turn to 1 John, if you would, for a moment. Because I am arguing, as the Bible does, that this whole process of loving, God loving you, results then in you loving God. So much of modern religion and theology says that in order to obligate God to save you, you have to exercise love and repentance and faith to God, and then God responds by saving you because he sees in you that love, that faith, and that repentance. I'm about to demonstrate to you that the Bible says love and faith and repentance are all gifts from God. And if indeed those are gifts from God, then if he doesn't give you those gifts, you can't do it, and you won't do it. Why? Self-worship. So 1 John, starting in chapter 4, we're going to start reading at verse 7. John's motivation is to instruct us to love one another, to care about each other, to look after each other, to lift each other up. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. That by itself is a really interesting concept. If you are completely self-loving, if you are completely self-worshipping, then naturally you're not going to love other people. You're going to care primarily about you which is your natural, sinful, depraved state. All you're really going to care about is you, what's good for you, what's advantageous for you. Me, 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 more of me. It's all about me. But enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think of me? It's all about me. It takes God to change your heart and mind to the point where you're willing to love each other sacrificially. So John says, even love itself, the kind of love that God is demanding of you, that type of love is something you cannot do. God has to give you that love. Because love, as John says, is from God. So, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves, genuinely loves, sacrificially loves is born of God and knows God. One of the evidences that you are loved by God, that you know God, is that you actually do have love for the brethren because that is not natural. Human beings aren't like that. Can I get a witness? <laughs> Human beings don't naturally gravitate toward sacrificing for the benefit of other people. Instead, we want to protect ourselves. But John says, because love is from God, everyone who does sacrificially love 
And that, by the way, is put in a tense in the Greek where it means to do it and to do it and to do it. It's in a state of constant now-ness. In other words, you're doing it now and you're doing it now and you're doing it now. It's a constant present tense where you're constantly loving the brethren sacrificially. You can't do that unless God gifts you with that ability. But if you do it, that proves that you were born of God and that you know God. Verse 8. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So now John has shown the contrast. If you don't love the brethren, you don't know God. If you're not sacrificially loving people and looking after people, you don't know God. But if you do know God, the end result of it is going to be that everlasting love of God is going to shine through you and you are sacrificially going to love other people. And that ability to love other people is a demonstration that you do know God and are born of God. So you see the contrast? John could not be more precise in his contrast. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. That's why he said before, love is from God. Because God is the source of all genuine love. And by this, says verse 9, by this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. John is arguing that the great demonstration of sacrificial love on God's part is that he sent his son to this dirty, dusty ball, and then his son sacrificially gave his life in order that we would ever live. That's about as sacrificial an act as you can think of, that God would take his perfect, righteous, holy unblemished son and send him down here among us sinners so that we sinners could beat him and spit on him and pluck out his beard and lash him across the back and put the crown of thorns on him and then nail him to a chunk of wood. Those are all really unloving acts. And yet God determined that Jesus was going to go through that so that God could demonstrate to us in a very physical way how much he actually loved us eternally. So then what should our response be to that kind of love, that kind of sacrifice? Verse 10, in this is love, not that we loved God. So see, the relationship did not begin with us. We were too busy self-loving to ever get to the point where we would turn ourselves to loving God. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and that very demonstration that I just talked about, that we just read in verse 9, the demonstration of God's love is that he sent his son to be the propitiation, the sin offering. For our sins. So the very fact that the historical reality of the crucifixion of Christ exists, that historic event stands as a testimony to the love and sacrifice of God for his people. It is a demonstration, says John, it is a demonstration of what love is because we don't love God naturally. We cannot love God naturally, but we learn to love God because he first loved us and then entered into time and reality, sacrificed his son for us, and there's been no greater demonstration in all of human history of the love of God than that he would send his beloved son to die for wretches like you and I. That's remarkable love. And therefore, because of that demonstration of love, we then love God in response. In this is love. 
not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has beheld God at any time. And if we love one another, God lives in us, stays in us, abides in us. And his love is made complete. The NASB translates it as perfected. But the word means that it's made complete in us because that love of God abides, stays, lives in us. Verse 13, by this we know that we live in him and he lives in us. The demonstration that we are in Christ and Christ is in us, according to John, is because he has given us his Holy Spirit. That is the proof positive. And the Holy Spirit of God deposited in us is a sacrificially loving spirit of God. So think this through with me for a moment. God sacrificed, lovingly sacrificed, His son sent him to the planet to die for wretches like us. His son sacrificially, lovingly gave his body, took the torture, and then took the very wrath of God in our place as a loving sacrifice. And then because of that loving sacrifice, he sent us the Holy Spirit of God who inhabits us. It is the sacrificial continuation of God from his sacrifice to his son's sacrifice to the Holy Spirit and its sacrifice that brought us to faith and love in and to God in Christ. And so I refuse to believe that God's sacrifice produces our salvation. Christ's sacrifice produces our salvation. The sacrifice of the Spirit produces our sanctification and our salvation. I refuse to believe that once it gets to you, all that sacrificial loving stuff just stops. It was sufficient when God did it. It was good when Jesus did it. It was fine when the Holy Spirit did it, but I don't got to do it. Instead, John says, the evidence that the Spirit of God is in you is that you share in that sacrificial love of God and you demonstrate it in how you love each other. You got all that? Love, then, I am arguing, comes from God. You can't genuinely love God or each other the way that God requires unless God gives you the ability to do that. God never responded to anybody's human love and said, oh, that person just arbitrarily decided to love me. I guess I have to save him now because of the great love with which he has loved me. No, instead it is always God that starts the loving relationship. So then God, through his love, through his everlasting love, because of his intention for those people who he loves, he then effectually calls those people to himself. That calling, that effectual calling, that call that converts people, that makes people born again, that brings people to the reality of God, that is not a general call. That is not an arbitrary call where God is just saying, hey, would anybody like to make me their Lord and Savior? I'll I'll promise you stuff. I'll give you stuff. You'll get a bigger car. You'll never be sick. I'll give you a bigger house. I'll give you... Never does God speak like that. Instead, because of who he is, what he is like in his absolute holiness, in his absolute kingship and lordship, Therefore, people ought to love and worship him, and they don't because of their depravity. He has to change you, he has to turn you, he has to draw you, and that calling is not a general call. Isaiah, again, Isaiah 42, the first two verses describe Jesus this way. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. Obviously, Isaiah here is speaking messianically. He's not speaking about any person, any human. No human could be spoken of by God as the one in whom my soul delights, my servant. So 
he's speaking of Christ and he says, look at him. Behold my servant. He's the one that I uphold. He's the one, as Steve said, every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess. He is my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Now we know he's not talking about any human being. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Look at the next phrase. He will not cry out or raise his voice nor make his voice heard in the streets. The whole idea of the church, the ekklesia, that Greek word, ekklesia, the prefix ek means out, klossus, to call, the outcalled, those that are called out of the world. That whole idea is that individuals are being called by God specifically to bring them into the church, the body and bride of Christ. Isaiah predicted that by saying he will not call out or raise his voice nor make his voice heard in the streets. Now, back in the days when Isaiah was writing some 2,600 years ago, they didn't have telephones, telegraphs. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have texting. They didn't have iPhones, which I think makes them better than us. But anyways, in order to gather a gathering, if you had some kind of speech to make, if you wanted to stand in the city square and announce whatever it was you were going to announce, the latest edict from the king or the latest philosophy that you wanted to advance, you would go out and call people into the square. And the way that you would do that is you would cry in the streets. You would go out and make the general announcement that in 15 minutes you were going to be standing in the square making your pronouncements and you'd be inviting people to come listen to you do it. When you did that, that general call into the square was a gathering or an assembly of people. That gathering or assembly was known as your calling, your assembly, your ecclesia. Got the idea? So Jesus says, I will build my ecclesia, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will call my assembly, I will call my gathering. But Isaiah says, unlike the way humans do it, where they go out into the streets and make pronouncements about themselves, where they go out and put the general call out and cry in the streets, come hear me talk in 15 minutes. Instead, Isaiah is very specific and says, he will not cry out. He will not raise his voice. He's not going to be yelling in the streets nor will he make his voice heard in the streets. Why? Because when Jesus creates his ecclesia, he's going to change people from the inside and then draw them to himself. Well, that, I argue yet again, is evidence of irresistibility because the very fact that the church exists the very fact that the ecclesia of Christ exists, even though Christ never went out and generally called people, even though he never made the big announcements, come, come to me. Instead, what you find is Christ drawing people irresistibly to himself by changing their heart, their mind, opening their eyes, opening their ears, and then drawing them irresistibly to himself. And that's what Isaiah predicted would be his mode of operation. And the church for the last 2,000 years has existed on planet Earth because that mode of operation actually works. And I find that fascinating. Because lots and lots of people have gone out and said, listen to me, pay attention to me. Dig me. I'm the one who matters. Every politician does it. Every politician goes out and yells in the streets because he needs votes. Every philosopher, everybody who's got some idea that they want to promote to the general society, they go out and cry out about it. But all of those humans who do that all eventually die. 
nobody has any continuation and that's why you've seen all these human movements through the years that have come and gone find yourself a political wig where is the wig party these days if that's for me I'm busy wait it might be an effectual call I'm so sad that I was in the room when I said that. Yeah. Where are the wigs? Where's the wig party these days? It's gone. Why? Because it was once constructed by a bunch of men who had the political idea, and then they all died, and then that idea faded away. The only reason that the church still exists for 2,000 years is because the one who has established it and is adding people to it is ever living. And so the church continues as a testimony to the power and the ever living of its founder. The church exists as a testimony to the irresistibility of the God who calls people and places them in the church. Now think about Christianity. Right now we are experiencing what I like to refer to as comfy Christianity. These days Christianity is presented like a, a comfy blanket. But Christianity has not always been that way. In the first century if you professed to be a Christian that was a death sentence. If you read what Paul and Luke and his traveling companions went through they were constantly, and Paul says it, Constantly in trouble, constantly in peril, constantly being stoned at Lystra and left outside the gates of the city for dead, imprisoned, instructed never to preach that way again. So there was constant peril, constant trouble, and yet it's real interesting when you read the book of Acts, Luke writing to Theophilus describes the horrible difficulty that they went through to promote Christianity. And yet he would say things like, hey, come join us. Nobody in their right mind is joining that kind of Christianity. So why did people? Why did the church survive? Why has the church been watered with the blood of saints and martyrs for all these years? And that blood has done nothing but fertilize the church so that it has continued to grow despite the opposition and the terrors that the world has imposed against the church. Why do people come into the church even at risk and pain of death? Why do people become Christians knowing that societally it will not make you more popular or more fun? It will not get you invited to more parties. Why do people become Christians? Because in the history of Christianity, being a Christian is a difficult thing, it is a stand that we take against the world. And the world hates us, and Jesus said, the world hated me, it's going to hate you. So why would anybody sign up for any enterprise that guarantees you're going to be hated? Because remember us, we love us. We worship us, and we want everybody else to worship us. We want everybody to like us. We're not trying to be hated. And yet Christianity, right at its core, right at the beginning, the very founder of Christianity says, come to me, and the world will hate you. And then the world does hate Christians and has a 2,000-year history of hating Christians. Why would anybody be a Christian? Because it's irresistible. Because the one who's calling you cannot be resisted. Because the God who sent his son to die for you is going to accomplish your salvation because that's what he decided for you. That's right. And you then are going to walk out your life, your activity, your behavior, your language, your interaction with other people, even the way that you sacrificially love other people is all in reaction to the God who ever loved you, who chose you, who effectively called you, and then expects you to react in that kind of sacrificially loving way to demonstrate that you have been called. Got it? 
so much of the church world again I'm gonna say this again I've said it many times and I'm gonna say it again watch me if you watch closely you'll hear me say it yet again that way too much of the church world gets that whole equation backwards they start with you turn to God you decide for God you make a decision for God you love God you exercise your faith in God you repent and turn to God and the Bible says you can't you can't do any of that you don't have the ability you don't even have the will you don't have the desire to do any of that instead the entire relationship biblically speaking begins with God who chose you since before the foundation of the world and then effectively called you to himself and your behavior is a response to that everlasting irresistible call got it, got it. that was only point one and I've got about eight points today <laughs> so I, I guess I have to say we'll probably be on this topic again next week Christianity is formed and proven by these troubles and these trials given that fact the only reason that anybody is going to become a Christian is because God irresistibly placed that person in the body of Christ and then since we know that not everyone is saved I mean the very fact that hell exists is a testament to the fact that not everybody is saved so if not everybody is saved then God has to be the one who's doing the choosing and then irresistibly placing particular people in his son it's unavoidable I don't know why people argue and fight with that idea because if you just read what the Bible says it's the only conclusion you can come to look if God is God then to be God he has no needs he has no wants he is completely sufficient within himself he is almighty he's all-powerful he's in charge of absolutely everything and most people in most Christian circles will admit that God is to some degree God Almighty certainly if they sing the hymns that are in the hymn book they'll sing about the almightiness of God but they don't really conceive of they don't think through what that means that God is almighty omnipotent that he has all the power and if he has all the authority and all the power how much does that leave over for you the answer would be nada none zip goose egg not a bit not even a smidgen you don't have the authority you don't have the power he's the almighty all-powerful in charge of everything being therefore since we all just agreed he's got all the power and you've got none how do you the none power guy how do you resist the all-powerful one well you can't if he's out to get you you're gonna get got he's gonna get you okay now a moment ago I said to you that not only is love a gift from God but that also the requirements of Christianity faith and repentance are also gifts from God that's what the Bible says Romans 11 I'm just going to read verses 28 and 29 for just a moment just because of one particular phrase that I want you to hold on to in Romans 11 Paul is talking about Israel Israel's rebellion against God the obvious notion that God has turned his back on Israel and is now interested in the church and only the church he's now responding to that and saying no no God has made promises to Israel from the standpoint of the gospel they are enemies for your sake but from the standpoint of God's election they are beloved for the father's sake and why are they still beloved despite their rebellion despite their sin despite chasing their foreign gods despite their adultery why does God still love them with an everlasting love Paul says it is because the gifts and the calling that effective effectual calling the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable that's a big English word that just simply means once God does something it doesn't change 
He doesn't revoke it. He doesn't say, never mind. He doesn't say, well, I meant to save those people, but then they just became too much trouble. And so, never mind. The gifts and the calling. If God has called you, that's irrevocable. That's unchangeable. Now, I am a big advocate of the grace of God. But even the grace of God, Paul says, is not an excuse to licentiousness. Should we sin all the more that grace may abound? His answer is no, heaven forbid. That's not the way it works. If you recognize and understand the grace of God, that ought to change your walk so that you walk, so you talk, so you behave in a more righteous and godly way because after all, you are an emissary of God here on planet Earth. But I had to say all that so that you would understand the next statement. Because the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable, you can't mess it up. Even your regular sinfulness, even your sinful flesh, even the fact that you're still walking around being the innate sinner that you are, nevertheless, the relationship between you and God cannot be changed or revoked because it was God who did it and not you. If it was you who did it, given how changeable you are, have you ever changed your mind? Did you ever change your mind about anything? Did you ever wake up one day and go, well, that was a dumb idea. I think I'll do something else. Did you ever change jobs? Did you ever change, uh, never mind, I don't like my car. I'm going to get a new car. Did you ever change your mind about anything? That's because you are changeable. You're constantly changeable. You change everything about you. You change your hair. You change your clothes. You're, just, you're changing all the time. You're getting older. Have you ever looked in the mirror? I'll tell you, it is startling these days. <laughs> I go look in the mirror, and there's this really old guy looking back at me. And in my head, I'm still 21. In my head, I am hip and groovy and cool. And I think the fact that I use the word groovy demonstrates how old I am. <laughs> I, it is shocking how old I am. This September, I'll be 65. And I only know that because of the amount of mail I'm getting saying, hey, you need to sign up for Medicare. You're about to be 65. Happy birthday. <laughs> Everything is changing. Everything about me is changing. Everything about my body is changing. My hair changed on me. Everything is changing. And so my whole point is, God, unchanging. Neither the variableness, neither the shadow of turning. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Unchanging because from the beginning of forever, God was always perfect in everything he chose to do, in everything he decided, in everything he has ever accomplished. It was always done perfectly. So he never had to change his mind. He never had to alter his plans because they were perfect from the start. We Constantly changeable. And that is why none of it can be left up to you. Because if it's left up to you, you'll change. You'll change your mind. You'll change your thoughts. You'll change your process. You'll change the way you think is effective to get to God. You're changing all the time. God, who doesn't change, started the relationship, sustains the relationship, will complete the relationship because the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. And boy, we want it to be that way. We don't ever want God to leave it up to us. Because in my 65 years, I can, th not quite 65, don't be in a hurry. <laughs> but in those years, I have made so many bad decisions. I have done so many things that I regret. God has never done anything that he regrets. He's never done anything that wasn't holy, righteous, and perfect from the very beginning. I want God's way more than I want my way. I've enjoyed as much of this life as I think I can stand. I look forward 
to being in that place where holiness to the Lord is the primary focus, the primary attribute of the entire New Jerusalem. I can't wait for that. I can't wait to leave behind this sinful body. You know, the best prayer I ever prayed had enough sin in it to put me in hell forever. I am so glad that God, who doesn't change, who can't be altered, whose gifts and promises are irrevocable, I'm so glad that he chose me, provided for me, enlightened me, drew me, and won't let go of me. Because if it can be messed up, I will. I'm so glad he didn't leave it up to me. God has to generate you. He has to place his spirit inside you. And that, according to Paul's own language, seals you for all eternity. He doesn't change. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't change his intentions. He doesn't change his eternal plan. And let's be honest, you're just not big enough to get away from a sovereign, almighty God. If he's after you, he's going to get you. Now, this is, yes, this is the very opposite of free will. Sorry, it just is. Instead, your will is completely bound to one of two things. Your will is either bound to your sinful, depraved state, which is all you're capable of doing. You're free to sin. You can sin all you want. That's what you're free to do after your natural state. But you're not free to get to God. You're not free to choose God. You're not free to obligate God. But then once God chooses you, enlightens you, and you are born again, your will is then subject to the very power, strength, omnipotence, irresistible, and irrevocability of God himself. So under either circumstance, your will is not free. Your will is in bondage to something. Therefore, when people hear this kind of preaching about the sovereignty of God, they'll say things to you like, well, then that just makes me a puppet. Or they'll say, you're saying that we're just robots. The reality is, if God doesn't call you and change you and leaves you in your state, according to the Bible, you are walking after the course of this world, after the prince of the power of the air. Or God changes you, and you're walking after the course of God in his righteousness as you pursue the things of sanctification. In either case... Someone's pulling your strings. The prince of the power of the air is playing you like a puppet or you're God's puppet. Either way, you're never completely independent. And given those two options, oh, I'm completely on God's side. If God wants to call me puppet or robot, fine, fine, just save me. I would much rather be on God's side than to continue being a puppet of the prince of the power of the air, which Paul says we all are by nature. So you can't avoid it. It's your nature. So can we conclude, therefore, that if we could resist, we would? With everything we know, then, about our ego, our pride, our self-love, our self-worship, the reality is if God didn't choose you and then keep you, you'd go right back to what you were before. You, you don't have the ability to resist and you don't want the ability to resist. Because if he allowed you to resist, you would. That's your nature, that's your character, that's what you're like. Repentance and faith. Jeremiah 13, 23 asks this question. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Can a leopard change his spots? Okay, the answer to both of those questions is no. You can't change the skin that you were born in. Whatever color your skin is, it is. And then Jeremiah goes even further so that people really get the example and says, can a leopard change his spots? There are no leopards ever who sat down one day and said, you know, I'm really tired of this spot thing, and I like what's happening with the tigers. I would far prefer to do the stripey thing instead of the spotted thing. No leopard ever managed by taking thought to change his spots. 
So the answer to the rhetorical question, can an Ethiopian change his skin, can a leopard change his spots, the answer is no. It's obvious, no you can't. Well, if you could, then may you also do good that are accustomed to do evil. And we are all by nature accustomed to do evil. So again, all the way back in the Old Testament, all the way back at Jeremiah, he says, you are sinful and depraved, and that's what you're going to be no matter what. You can't change that. Jesus picked up that same idea and said, which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit to his stature? Which of you, by just thinking about it, can add one day to your life? When it's time for you to die, it's time for you to die, and you can't, by thought, live longer. You can't, by thought, be taller. Look, I've gone through my whole stupid life being five foot six inches. I have always wanted to be 6'2". Always. Long shock of blonde hair. I had plans for me. <laughs> and none of them worked out. Why? Because I can't change my skin. I can't change my spots. I can't change what I am. And I can't change that I'm a sinner. So God has to inhabit me. God has to change me. If there's any changing to be done, it's going to be God that empowers the change. And the whole Bible says, what you are, you are. And what you are is a depraved, self-loving, self-worshipping sinner. Natural men, men after their own vision, their own eyes, their own estimation of themselves, men don't see any reason why they ought to change, why they ought to repent. They think they're just fine. Men in their self-love think they're just dandy. Proverbs 16.2 says, All the ways of a man are clean in his own eyes. Yeah, because every man thinks he's fine. We have this remarkable ability to justify ourselves. No matter how bad the things that we do are, we have this ability to tell ourselves, well, it wasn't that bad. Well, it wasn't as bad as Hitler. I mean, after all, you know, I didn't murder a bunch of people, so I guess I'm not that bad. There is a way. There are all the ways of a man that are clean in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. He weighs the heart. He determines what the motivation was behind what you did. And even as you're justifying yourself, he's holding you guilty. Proverbs 30, verse 12 says, There is a generation that are pure in their own eyes and yet is not washed from their filthiness. Look at the contrast there. They are filthy, depraved humans, and yet they look fine in their own eyes. Perfectly good, perfectly pure. I'm good. That's the natural state of human beings. But the holiness of God absolutely requires that a man turn from himself, from his self-seeking ways, and then turn toward seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what Jesus said. This is what you need to do. Don't seek after the things of this world. Don't seek after the things that the sinners and the Gentiles seek. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these other things are going to be added to you. That is an absolute requirement from God. Righteous, holy God has demanded of you to turn away from your selfish self, to turn away from your self-loving, self-worshipping self, and turn toward him. And you can't. And he demands it of you. So can a man from his own will, from his own intellect, understand that holy decree to repent and then take it upon himself to perform it? No, absolutely not. The Bible does not allow for that. Instead, God has to cause you to repent. He has to require it of you and then give it to you. Because everything, get this right, Everything about your eternal redemption and salvation is provided for you from God. None of it resides in you. All right, we're going to read these two verses and we're done for the morning. I am aware of the clock. Although some people in this room would argue with you that I am aware of the clock. But I'm facing that one right there. 
second Timothy 2 25 in meekness you are to instruct those who oppose themselves here Paul is saying to Timothy there are people who are going to oppose the things of Christianity you should correct instruct reprove those people but do it in meekness do it in gentleness do it in kindness but you're still to do it if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth so our job is to tell the truth our job is to present Christianity to present Christ in all his loveliness in all his sacrifice in everything that he has done for people our job is to teach that to present that to reprove people who oppose themselves but to do it kindly and gently because we don't know whether God might open their heart their mind so that they understand it and they get it and all the lights go on and everybody's home that might happen but it also might not and the difference is God has to give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth people are only going to come to the recognition of the truth of the Bible the truth of the Word of God the truth of Jesus Christ they're only going to understand it if God grants them repentance to turn away from themselves and turn toward the things of God Romans 2 4 says the same thing do you despise the riches of the goodness of God and his forbearance and his long-suffering not knowing that the very goodness of God leads you to repentance it is God who has to call you to repentance it is God who has to call you to give up on yourself I like the phrase I have quoted it often you need to take sides with God against yourself you need to turn away from all the stuff of you and all your self-worship and turn to God and given everything that the Bible says about our naturally depraved self-loving self-worshipping state we simply cannot do that unless God gives us the ability to turn from ourselves to him and he does that by effectually calling us to himself got that got it. did that all make sense yes if not go home and read your Bible <laughs> so. are there any questions about all that all right well good well all right then I think we should sing one more hymn if you would Steve turn to 37 in your hymn book and then Michael will be up to uh, pray our closing prayer
you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.